Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media, and a contributing columnist on CIO.com. Twice a month, we produce this video show and podcast to stream live to you on LinkedIn and IDG's Tech Talk channel on YouTube. Today's episode is sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, the global leader in cybersecurity. Palo Alto Networks rises to the challenge of modern cybersecurity by innovating relentlessly to make each one of our days safer and more secure than the one before. You can see what they have cooking next in cybersecurity at paloaltonetworks.com. We welcome all of our viewers today to join in this live conversation with questions of your own. One of my editor colleagues, Michelle Davidson at IDG, is watching the stream right now on CIO Online and will be happy to pass along your questions to my esteemed guest, who today is John Wilson, a Vice President, CIO, and Chief Security Officer for MITRE Corporation. John oversees the Enterprise Computing Information and Security Organization at MITRE and he also guides MITRE's business transformation, which is a strategic multi-year effort to transform the business operations and the systems. With its dual headquarters in Bedford, Massachusetts and McLean, Virginia, MITRE is a not-for-profit organization that manages the federally funded research and development centers, known in the government jargon as the FFRDCs, and they support various U.S. government agencies in aviation, defense, healthcare, information technology, and so important these days, cybersecurity. At about $2 billion in revenue, MITRE employs around 10,000 people, many of them scientists, engineers, and support specialists. As a 35-year veteran of MITRE, John took on his current CIO-CSO combination role two years ago in November of 2019. Before that, he worked in a variety of IT and software systems positions leading and delivering and enabling on the business mission of MITRE Corporation. John, welcome. It's so nice to have you here with us today. Thank you, Mary Fran, for having me on. Okay, before we dive into the impact of the last two years of disruption, I guess it's 18 months, but we're starting to round up now to two years. Um, uh, all and how that's been impacting the businesses that you run. Let's start with a big picture view of the work that MITRE does. I thought one great example from when we talked earlier was some of the work that won uh, a CIO 100 Innovation Award from us this year for the way your team developed and ran a pandemic healthcare coalition, which was essentially a virtual company that you spun up in about 30 days and it had more than 1,100 member organizations. Tell us a little bit more about that award-winning project and the management of it and how that demonstrates so nicely the kind of work that MITRE is trying to do in the world. Sure. Uh, thanks again, Mary Fran. So that example uh, was kind of interesting. It was in the early stages of the pandemic, and we were, like uh, all other organizations, trying to figure out how to pivot our employee workforce to largely remote work and the nature of the work and the companies that we work with as an organization, we had this opportunity to set up the C-19 healthcare 
coalition, as you noted. Uh, and really the challenge was how do you create a highly collaborative integrated environment across over a thousand organizations with different work streams. And at the early stages of the pandemic, obviously there were, there were a lot more questions than answers mm -hmm. around, um, around the pandemic. And so that effort in about you know, 30 days to get it off the ground, uh, we worked with a number of technology partners to basically set up a cloud-based infrastructure Mm -hmm. that would support different work groups and lines of effort that were sharing data, they were doing analytics, uh, they were doing different experiments, basically, again, in the early stages in the, in the pandemic. Yes. Well, and it, um, I, one of the things I know when I was reading through the, um, uh, the application for the award, which uh, you very generously shared with me, I found it interesting that you had multiple, essentially private industry competitors that were all part of that collaborative effort. Uh, that's probably not new for MITRE. I'm sure that you partner up with all sorts of different industry competitors. But was there anything that was, uh, what were the, the kind of the learnings that came out of that? Was it easier to do because of the healthcare crisis or did you discover new ways that kind of going forward in a hybrid work environment, there were things that everybody could do better together? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I mean, crisis obviously can be a forcing function. And I think just given the nature of the coalition, which was really to go after, you know, some of these uh, challenges around the pandemic. Yeah. The understanding was that to join the coalition, you kind of bring your own, whether that's capabilities, whether it's software or whatnot. So there was no, you know, we wanted to eliminate any financial motivation associated with the coalition. And yes. so, again, we were fortunate to have a lot of industry partners that very willingly just jumped in and contributed what they brought to the table. Mm -hmm. Well, I liked one phrase you used for it where you said it was really approaching it as a coalition as a platform. Yes. I, I know in this industry we hear about as a platform or as a service about so many things. In fact, we're going to talk about several of those uh, in our conversation today. But what are some of the aspects of coalition as a platform that you hope you get to repeat again? Yeah, so I think from going through that experience, um, you know, under considerable duress mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we learned so much that we took a step back when we had a chance to kind of catch our breath and said, you know, this is not a unique need or an opportunity ah. that the pandemic has forced any company to really look both at how they work differently within the enterprise mm -hmm. and outside the enterprise with their partners and with their customers. Yes. And we said for us, given the type of company that we're that we are, there's certain patterns of collaboration that we need to be able to repeat really efficiently mm -hmm. with different partners to solve different classes of problems. It could be sharing data sets, you know, for doing shared analysis. It could be co-development of a new technical capability. We're, we're bringing something to the table, but there's several partners that are also bringing something to the table. Right. So that that was kind of the 
the concept behind coalition as the platform was to come up with these design patterns and allow us to very quickly stand up the required infrastructure to support those patterns of uh, collaboration. Well, and as I, uh, I'm assuming this was a cloud-based uh, yes, platform. Yes, all cloud-based. Oh, okay. Yes, but because I know from our conversation earlier that it's not Mitre is not trying to put 100% of everything you do in the cloud. That's not really practical for a lot of enterprises, especially that have been around and do the kind of high-level security work and that sort of thing that you do. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, something else you said about remote can be easy to do, especially when everybody has to be remote, but the hybrid work environment is a lot more difficult to figure out. Um, fill us in a little bit on where things stand with MITRE for the way you are managing both remote and the hybrid work environments these days. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, great topic. A lot of organizations are wrestling or wrangling through this. So mm -hmm. where we are, um, like you had mentioned, when we went remote, like a lot of organizations, we had to make some very quick technology shifts and make some changes. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I'd say within a couple months, mm -hmm. everything was up and running. And then really the question at that point was across our organization, different business units and 10,000 employees, how are they using what we put into place? So we put a lot of work into instrumenting the enterprise and the different tools to really get insights to see if you looked at a department, a 50-person organization, or you look at a 500-person organization, do you kind of see patterns of collaboration and usage around mm -hmm. the tools? And so for probably for the next year, when most of the company was working remotely, we really had a chance to, I think, kind of dial that in and, and make that work well. Um, where we're at now as a company is there are obviously some things that, you know, don't translate as well to remote collaboration as they do in person. Mm -hmm. um, different, different things that you want to get done or just uh, kind of, you know, the opportunistic run-ins that you have with colleagues when you're walking around the campus or you're in a lab and you discover someone that you... The water cooler effect. Yeah, yeah. kind of the water cooler mm -hmm. effect. And so we, we are in a hybrid position with respect to uh, trying to blend the two, mm -hmm. but there are technology aspects of making that well. And I, and I just think kind of concept of operation. So what works well for one team doesn't work well necessarily for another team. And so, you know, we encourage teams really to figure out how best to work remotely together and how best to work on site together to get, you know, to get the best out of both experiences. Right. And then right. individuals can sort of tailor, you know, their own schedule and their own circumstances within what is working for their team. Mm -hmm. And then as a company, again, we are trying to really instrument that, pay attention to where there may be certain barriers that are getting in the way, whether they're technology barriers or certain groups in the company are just perhaps struggling with some of the emerging practices around hybrid work. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's going to take some time, I think, where it feels like that's working as seamless as 
all in person or all remote. Yes. Well, I had a, a really interesting conversation on one of our recent uh, leadership live shows with Eddie Wagner, who is um, the digital CIO for JLL. Who ma they manage all those real estate, um, yes. uh, huge management real estate company. And he talked about um, an application they made available where essentially people could <clears throat> check in and get access to all these different resources, when they're, whether they're in the building or out of it, uh, but especially in the building. And even things like being able to check out, kind of automating all of that gee, I'm going to be in on Tuesday, it'd be great to get together with John and maybe we could have a, a socially distanced lunch together, you know, that yes. kind of thing. Does yeah, we have, a, we have a similar thing because one of the mm -hmm. things I neglected to, to note, but right on the beginning of the pandemic, we made a decision as a company to furnish every employee with an iPhone. Yes. And the thought was, you know, give them very quick access to some of our uh, intranet capabilities, but also give them a hotspot, you know, because mm -hmm. in the early stages, um, uh, people's internets were, you know, getting bogged down in their neighborhood and whatnot. So they had a hotspot as kind of a backup. Yeah. But that phone now provides a great opportunity coming back into the office, as you say, for kind of location-based services. Mm -hmm. Say, so where's my team hanging out today? Yeah. Or give me a space as close as you can to a certain lab because I know I'm going to need to spend some time going into the lab, going back to my my uh, workspace when I'm in. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that combination of kind of scheduling location aware services is one way that you can make the on site experience a little bit unique, a little yeah. bit different yeah. than kind of hanging out at home. Mm hmm. Interesting. Well, we have our first question from the audience, um, and it's it's I, I, this happens to me all the time where I'm about to ask a question on a certain topic, and one of my audience members is already on top of it here. They beat you to um, it. Yes, exactly. And usually they're a little bit better and more refined than my own questions, so I totally encourage everyone to send them in. Uh, the question is, it's really good to see your various roles reflected in your titles. Um, and so do you feel that other companies and organizations should make it clear that security is a shared responsibility by creating roles that span those functional areas? And of course, this is a reference to your combination CIO CSO role at MITRE. So we were going to get into that anyway. Let's yeah. dive into that now. <laughs> yeah, and the role MITRE has um, filled that role in different places in the organization. You know, intentionally, I think, to try to, in viewing the role as being synergistic. So at one point prior to it um, being with me, it was in the direct business. Mm -hmm. And the thought at that point was, you know, have the role very close to where our cybersecurity cyber business is and the cybersecurity strategy for the company because we've got, we've got innovation centers on the direct side of the business that develop different capabilities in cybersecurity. Yeah. So at one point, the CSO role was very close to that. And again, that had some synergies and advantages. I think where it is right now, and part of the reason why it got moved is the CEO when we were um, you know, some months into the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and he approached me about the role. 
I think he was looking to kind of close the air gap between us deploying different IT capabilities mm -hmm. and, you know, thinking about the cybersecurity impl implications of yeah. rolling out yeah. some of these capabilities. So, you know, having those two roles sometimes can seem uh, somewhat internally conflicting to me, you know, because <laughs> as uh, from the CIO standpoint and my prior experience in the direct business, it's really about enabling the business in different ways, right. doing that quickly, moving out, uh, whereas obviously the CSO role has some real considerations around the security of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. So um, so it does close the gap. I think that's really advantageous. It helps um, integrate the InfoSec team, which is part of my organization, and all the other teams in corporate IT, you know, kind of brings them closer together. I, and, you know, there's kind of a uh, escape valve, my CISO, mm -hmm. a very capable CISO, if he ever feels like that, you know, I'm getting conflicted yeah. between the two roles, then he has a direct line to escalate that. And that's understood. That he, could, he could bring something up to our CEO if it, if it were warranted. Yeah. Well, and let's, while we're on that topic of your organization, out of the 10,000 or so employees at MITRE, about 450 of them are dedicated to ECIS, Enterprise Computing Information and Security. Um, talk about how you have that structured and have you made any big shifts or changes in it over the last two years in, in this? It's not exactly a new role for you anymore. You've been doing it for two years. Right. What sort of, how does it look different today than it might have three or four years ago? Just structurally. Yeah, so, so I did come in and we did make some changes, I think, to kind of streamline the organization. So mm -hmm. out of that... 450 there, essentially three um, sub-organizations or divisions. There's one which is InfoSec that I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, second one really covers everything infrastructure end-to-end, -end, our computing infrastructure, our networking, uh, our endpoints. Everything is covered in the second organization. And then the third one is knowledge and business systems. Mm -hmm. That was probably probably the bigger change that I made because those were separate organizations before. We have a, a large and strategic effort, as you had mentioned, in business transformation that mm -hmm. we've been at for, um, I think, three years at this point. Mm -hmm. And that effort and our knowledge management capabilities were in two different organizations. And we brought, we brought them together really to kind of close the gap there too, because we wanted to make sure that we were getting as much as we could out of these commercial SaaS systems. Yes. Um, where we had some existing capabilities, some that were custom built over many, many years, you know, exclusively done. Sure. We wanted to make sure that we're kind of looking objectively to say, okay, where's the best uh, investment? You know, how can we use these commercial capabilities to their full capacity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah. before before we move off kind of that whole topic area about hybrid work, um, I, I've been noticing a lot of organizations 
are of course becoming more complex than ever and a lot and a number of them are approaching the whole area of vendor and supplier consolidation as something that is rising up in importance on their strategy list what um what is your feeling on that one when it comes to consolidating vendors and suppliers where are things for you today and how you look at that as the cio and cso versus maybe the way things were a few years ago. Yeah, so, um, and, and again, sort of my window into that is relatively short, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd say we've kind of actually gone the other direction a bit um, because of the pandemic. So we probably went... Uh, a bit in the direction of making sure we had more tools to support the different needs of the business to collaborate, get their work done. So, you know, for example, pre-pandemic, we had a on-premise uh, collaboration capability using Skype. We had had that for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, very early in the beginning of the pandemic, we switched to Microsoft Teams. And then the healthcare coalition stood up. They needed to do a lot using Zoom because of the member organizations that were part of that. Um, then we looked into packages for shared whiteboarding. Mm -hmm. It was different packages in terms of kind of monitoring and measuring how things were going. So hmm. our mindset was we are willing to put different tools into play so that the company can continue to deliver on its mission. Okay. I think once we reach a stable state, then as you asked, then that's the opportunity to kind of take a step back and take stock and say, how do we do some consolidation? Uh, okay. It's been a similar thing on the, the business side as well. So the business transformation, we've got a number of different systems. I think just kind of getting them into play, getting the company adopting and using them and figuring out um, you know opportunities for consolidation from that you know will be uh, will be something that we get into yeah well i think that's interesting and it actually kind of it makes sense and given all the new and somewhat experimental approaches that companies are taking that you would actually be bringing on more partners rather than trying to winnow them right. out. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing too, the nature of the company, as you said, because we run these R&D centers for not-for-profit, you know, we often on the direct side, but I think it's important on the enterprise side, we will bring in a technology, limited license, um, sometimes no cost, again, because we're not for profit, we'll put it into play and kick the tires on it to mm -hmm. see how it can help us out. But that also informs us as we support our sponsors in terms of what we've seen that works and doesn't work under different situations. Yes. Um Okay, I wanted to segue next. I know one of your very strategic projects that you're working on right now um, is around zero trust. And is that something that you're just um, experimenting with and moving toward internally, or are you doing this sort of work for your clients and and um, you know the people, the organizations you do business with as yeah. well? Well, actually, actually both. So it's a you know, it's a very strategic topic for a number of our sponsors. Um, I'd say a little over 
a year ago, mm-hmm. we uh, really took a look at a number of different zero trust technologies. And mm-hmm. there are kind of two vantage points why it got up very high on the list and we looked into it in earnest. The first one was from the, the obvious um, security benefits and ramifications around zero trust. Mm-hmm. But the second one was at that point, we had most of the company working remotely. And we increasingly had more of our capabilities that are off premise and hosted in different cloud environments. Yes. So the whole notion of having a VPN tunnel going back onto the corporate mm-hmm. network just to come back out to a hosted service when employees were working at home, really, we saw kind of a business advantage around Zero Trust as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, we moved into a project um, close to a year ago to actually um, deploy it in the company. We've got it deployed to most employees at this, this point, so they're on Zero Trust. And um, we have started to look at it in terms of uh, providing partner and sponsor access to certain capabilities that are in our enterprise. Because that's that's one of the big examples is this idea of precision access. You know, if I want to give Mary Fran Johnson Mm -hmm. access to some very specific uh, information asset or capability in the MITRE Corporation, how do I do that? Right. right. So that we feel for, again, the, the range of work that we do across the number of government sponsors and number of partners will give us some tremendous opportunities going forward. Well, it was interesting when we were talking earlier, we ended up talking about the access being very specific to a particular asset or a resource, that it's not based on a persona. You don't just decide that Mary Fran Johnson seems like she's very trustworthy. Let's just give her full run of our network. Right, let her into everything. <laughs> not, not that that would happen in any part of the world today. But um, I know that uh, Zero Trust is essentially, it is a group of technologies that are very much in motion because a lot of this is developing now. And I was yes. reading various articles about it recently, and there was a lot of talk about the different stages of infrastructure maturity in terms of handling it. Where is MITRE along that road? And how do you how do you kind of calibrate and look at the maturity of where you are with, with Zero Trust? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So this first phase, Zero Trust, they often talk about a, the north-south uh, as, aspect of it and the east-west aspect. And then north-south is really the employees or the users of your enterprise. How do you use Zero Trust to give them more direct access to resources, whether the resources are on your corporate enterprise or in the cloud somewhere? Mm-hmm. And so that that piece of the project we are well into. Like I said, we've got I think about ninety percent of our employees uh, up on zero trust. Okay. The the second piece of it, which is really well, how do you think about your enterprise differently for segmented access or precision access by different groups of um, contractors or partners or sponsors? That we're still in the relative early stages. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it, 
it's going to take some time for any complex enterprise to really think about how do you best, in a sense, rewire or re-architect yourself, yeah. preserve trust away from a fundamentally a network perimeter model mm-hmm. of access. Um, now, we do have some uh, capabilities in MITRE, which are uh, technical platforms around areas that we do, you know, we really have some uh, unique capabilities, whether it's in cybersecurity mm-hmm. or position navigation timing, uh, systems engineering. So we have about a dozen or so of these technical platforms that have different assets, you know. And so we've really started there to say, okay, if we can enable those for zero trust mm-hmm. and different mm-hmm. modes of access by partners we're working with or sponsors that we're supporting, that's a great place to start because a lot of our work program is making use of those capabilities. Got it. Well, I like to, and I've, I've heard this, uh, I think... I hesitate to call it a trend yet. I mean, in the in media circles, once you've heard three people say the same thing, you've got a trend. So I'm probably over-exaggerating, but the fact that you tended first to the employee experience has, it's just something that I hear a lot more about from CIOs today. And it, uh, I, you know, we talk a lot more about empathy and about understanding all the different the hybrid ways we need to work together, all of the support for remote and all of that, is that is that that focus on the employee experience first as you're rolling this out. Is that something that's very traditionally the way MITRE would approach it, or does that kind of play more to the time that we're operating and living in today? <laughs> yeah, certainly MITRE, I think, is, and, and I'm speaking from when I was in my prior roles, Mm-hmm. MITRE has always put a lot of focus on the explored employee experience inside the company. Okay. So we think about different roles or like different personas, a role of a project leader mm-hmm. or a new employee. You know, how do you get a new employee um, best acclimated in a large enterprise? Like you said, a $2 billion Mm-hmm. company, 10,000 employees can be very daunting to a new employee. So how do we use yeah, the, yeah. how do we use the intranet uh, and think about the employee experience first, right? To make that happen or different, uh, different roles, different teams in the organization, just thinking about a project leader. What's the, what's kind of the life of a project leader from when they start a new project to they're in the, the heat of a project and delivering capabilities to a sponsor to actually wrapping up the project and closing it down someday. So, so that has always been a big focus. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I credit my predecessor and the, the team that I inherited for doing that well. Mm-hmm. I think what the, the pandemic did was it put IT in the spotlight. Uh, as I reminded my team at the very beginning of the pandemic, I said, we have everyone's undivided attention. <laughs> Including the board of directors. Right. Yeah. For better yeah. or for worse. Yep. Yep. I, you know, IT has never been as much in the spotlight for that period of time. So 
And I think that still continues to be the case for some of these mm -hmm. things that we're talking about. Well, and, and we tend to just on, on this particular program, we tend to talk to a lot of the CIOs who are taking full advantage of that spotlight and using it and making sure that not only are they addressing things operationally, but also using the opportunity to think and discuss more strategic issues with the rest of the business in yes. the companies that they're at. And I know this is not a new area for you because although you're, you're, you're 35 years with MITRE, most of them have been in what looks like technical IT type roles. You've actually been working kind of face to face with the business. You've been directly involved in the business of MITRE and the customers that it serves over the last couple of decades. Does that, do you think, give it, what kind of a benefit do you think that brings as you make sure that IT is connecting all those dots between the, the, the business deliverables and the technology, all operating in this very warm and expansive spotlight right now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's, uh, there's just no substitute for actually you know, walking many miles in the different roles in the direct business for whatever organization that you happy, happen to be in. Mm -hmm. And for me, I filled nearly every role on the direct business. So you just, you come to know things that very instinctively about how the IT is either an enabler or it's getting in the way. And yeah. some, things, some things can just be, you know, maddening um, on the direct side of the business because you know the information is in the enterprise. Yes. We're just not able to marshal it effectively and deliver it to the point of need mm -hmm. for the business user. So that's certainly a big thing that I brought into this organization when I took on the role. And I, you know, I encourage my team, I try to work with them to always think outside in. You know, it's easy for us to lead with the technology but really you want to lead with the business problem or the business opportunity that the technology is enabling. And, uh, you know, keep, really keep that front of mind to the extent we can. Well, and, and I think probably for MITRE and for a lot of other companies, that actually means being able to connect quickly and directly to your best resources in your organization. And you and I talked about a very interesting little feature that you've rolled out over the, I think the last year, your hyperlink tagging that you do now uh, among the, the incredible force of expertise yes. and, and yeah. IT and business knowledge you have. Tell us about that and what that accomplishes. Yes, and so actually that, um, that feature we've had for a while, I think um, in the era of hiring in the pandemic, where new employees were joining the company remotely, as yeah. opposed to coming into the campus, it's even more important. But essentially, the one of the things the company has always done really well is this idea of a connected enterprise, that mm -hmm. there are fundamental um, really objects in the enterprise that can be people or employees, they can be projects, they can be technical capabilities, mm -hmm. the organizational entities inside the company. And all of those things are highly 
uh, hyperlinked or connected in a lot of different ways. And so mm -hmm. it, it allows employees basically to reach across the expanse of the company to find what they need. That The need may be, how do I find an expert that's got a particular mm -hmm. skill? How do I find a technical capability that I think may have been developed so I don't have mm -hmm. to reinvent the wheel? Uh, or how do I find experience on a project that's similar to the project that I'm just kicking off with yes. a sponsor? So in your specific question though, the Sometimes the best capabilities are the most elegantly simple capabilities. And so the way this tagging works is if you have a skill that you want to declare, say it's object-oriented programming or signal processing or whatnot, you mm -hmm. add that tag to what we call the technical stature that describes you as an employee. You know, it's your educational background, your project experience, if you've been involved with a conference or a publication, it has all of that. But you can add these tags. And when you add a tag, you are instantly hyperlinked to all other employees in the company that share that same tag. Oh, wow. So if I add the tag zero trust, mm -hmm. then it links to all other employees that have declared zero trust. So for me in the corporate IT shop, now I get to see who is working on zero trust for different sponsors across our business. Mm -hmm. So it gives you this view, not only of who your colleagues are, but yeah. what projects are they working on actually using that uh, skill set? Wow. So, so it's a... And like I said, it's really, really important in the pandemic because someone joins a company, they can't, you know, they don't come in, they don't meet in the auditorium, walk around the campus, at least they weren't for quite a while. Right. But digitally, they could add a handful of tags that really describe their key skills and instantly have their networks across the company. Yeah, that's interesting too. I have, I talk with a lot of CIOs about company culture and how it has changed or evolved or how how things are what's moving in what direction when we think about hybrid work today and the remote situations and how much everything has changed and some of this as you describe it i, I know you're you're saying it's a simple tagging feature but it reminds me a little bit of some of the sci-fi like in the future shows that you watch where they people want to know something and they call out to the computer and all of a sudden they've got 3d models in front of their faces you know and they're they're pulling things off them and everything is moving together it seems it's so elegant and fast. And yes. I, I think we have a tendency to think that that is kind of a sci-fi connection rather than something that could actually be going on now. Do you find, is, uh, do you see a lot of these capabilities developing in the various business, the, the people that work on the direct side of the business, um, I, the clients and customers of MITRE? Is, it, is this getting to be a much more common sort of way to connect uh, an enterprise on the inside as the as our culture of the next couple of years is developing? Um, or are you way ahead of the game and this is just a good idea to pass along? <laughs> well, I think, I think any large enterprise is always looking for those types of benefits that mm -hmm. you describe in, in terms of how to be highly connected, highly collaborative, 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, certainly our our sponsors are looking at those types of things. I will say we've had the advantage that we've been at it for a long time, just from the nature of who we are as a company. So I think we're probably um, pretty well positioned in that. For me, kind of the, the next thing is how do we use the information that we have in the enterprise to really anticipate mm-hmm. making those connections and bringing information um, to the employees without them having to ask for it or have to go out and search for it. Okay. So, you know, take, taking that hyperlinking example that I described and how we connect employees, a, you know, a future step would be, let's suppose I haven't taken the time to do that, mm-hmm. but the enterprise notices the project that I'm working on yeah. and the nature of the work going on in that project Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing from the different, you know, digital breadcrumbs that I leave just from doing mm-hmm. my work in the company. And it actually makes a suggestion to me. It says, hey, John, we noticed the last several months you've been working on this project in these particular areas. Would it make sense to add a tag? And uh-huh. sim- simply acknowledge it. It gets added automatically. So little things like that to really take you know, to, in some sense, flip the model. We're doing something around our endpoints too. Normally uh, employees associate a help desk with submitting a ticket and requesting help. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're trying to take the data that we have uh, from the endpoints, the laptops that employees are using to actually spot, you know, leading indicators of problems that may be starting to arise. Mm-hmm. That way the help desk could reach out to you and say, Mary Fran, we've noticed there's seemed to be something going on on your laptop. We'd like to kind of preemptively address it as opposed to you having to call the help desk. So. Right, right. But of course, from one of the things we uh, talked about that you're very interested in and using now is phishing as a service. And I had gotten, by the end of my, um, I left IDG in the corporate presence for CIO Magazine about two years ago. And, but I remember I was getting increasingly suspicious when I would get helpful emails of that sort of nature. I would start wondering, is this a phishing scam? I mean, and a lot of times it was actually from the HR department. So um, you probably have ways that you get around that, I'm sure. But let's let's talk about that phishing as a service, because when we were on the various security topics, you had mentioned that that is something that has been very useful. And it's got that in the moment, you know, we're here to, we're actually here to help you sort of feel right. to employees. So tell us more about that. And I think that's, to me, is really the, the interesting thing, or maybe the change in the model mm-hmm. is uh, when I first came into this role, we do, like a lot of organizations, we do a periodic training in information security, because we want to keep our employees on their toes and well-trained and all of that, whether it's phishing through emails or any other topics. And that training keeps getting more and more rigorous and difficult every year from the standpoint of an employee. 
And you get a grade on it, and it takes 40 minutes to go through the training, and then you don't even get yeah. 100%. Yeah, I think I it takes longer than 40 minutes at this point. So, wow. so yeah. it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty daunting, um, as it has to be, because there are a lot of topics to cover. And so the, this phishing as a service essentially is by using a commercial provider, mm-hmm. we can send phishing emails to employees and in fact, we can tailor the, some of them to the role that you are in. Hmm. So it can be very targeted. Almost diabolically um, so. To, to the role that you're in. Almost <laughs> yeah. diabolically. We're, not, we're yeah. not there to trick people or to give a grade, but it's really, if you generate, say, a handful of those emails mm-hmm. for employees that click on a link or they download something they're not supposed to, the training is provided right there. So it's kind of this microburst of training saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that, but here's some tips yeah. for yeah. next time to look out for yeah. an email that may be compromised. And <laughs> so it's that, you know, it's that concept to move from this, you know, periodic sort of heavyweight training to training mm-hmm. that's very opportunistic, sort of in the context of the person doing the work. Yeah. We actually do that for some of our business systems as well. The business systems get used for a lot of things. Good. And mm-hmm. the idea is how do you how do you embed very focused training right in, in the action of someone trying to accomplish something? Yes. Yeah, of course. Well, and I'm sitting here making a, a generational assumption that this would be especially appealing to Gen Z and millennials uh, that are, but I don't know if that's that's true. You you had mentioned how much I think you called it exquisite data. You're always gathering on all, how the effectiveness of these different programs and and processes. Do you have any um, sense for? how how well received this is and is it received differently by someone who is say a 30-year veteran of MIT versus a two-year veteran? Yeah, I mean for a certain things certainly you can uh, slice and dice the user metrics by you know different demographics. It could be mm-hmm. by organization, it could be by um, career tenure, it could be tenure at MITRE and so uh, could be whether someone's on a campus or at a site. You know, you see differences in terms of adoption around different capabilities from that standpoint. So you do have to think kind of multi-dimensionally in that okay. way. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me, one of the interesting things around uh, early career hiring, which we do a lot as a company, is just getting fresh sets of eyes on established business processes and ways that we do business. Yes. You know, you can, uh, just the, the perspective of an employee that's new to the organization mm-hmm. and encouraging them to kind of challenge assumptions. Yes. That, uh, that's, a, that's a really good thing. Well, and in that, in that vein, um, tell us more about the micro grants. We, we had talked uh, innovation and making sure that is that innovative spirit is in the DNA of the organization. I often ask CIOs 
for specific ways that they go about making sure that's happening. Because, you know, a, a place like MITRE, you've got, you know, an entire innovation center and oftentimes they are client or customer facing. Yes. But yeah. in terms of making sure that innovation is kind of continually plowed into, in a very pleasant way, of course, the yes. DNA of your um, ECIS staff, uh, you had mentioned the micro grants program. So I want you to describe that a little bit. I thought that was a really kind of cool idea. Yeah, and to provide some some context on that as well. So we've got a uh, we've got an IRAD program uh, in the company under our chief technical officer and chief medical officer. We often leverage things coming out of that program because uh, you know new technologies or research that we're applying in the direct business can also have application in the enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, so we've always had a good partnership there. We've got a innovation program, kind of more formal innovation program within my organization, mm -hmm. which leads to uh, you know, innovation projects to really try some new things out. But to, to get at what you were saying, you know, how do you get innovation into the DNA of the organization to every individual? And the, the thing is really to make it as lightweight and opportunistic as possible. Mm -hmm. There are always lots of good ideas that are coming up every day inside the organization. And unfortunately, they can often go sort of unseen to the company, right? Someone comes up with an idea, they just kind of, you know, discard it and keep moving along with their project. And so the concept of the micro grant was to allow someone with an idea to run with it for, you know, a few days to further develop it and to do that without a lot of oversight and review. And so very simply is this, if you've got an idea mm -hmm. or some innovation, be can be around a business process, it can be applying a tool in a different way, could be some of the metrics that I've mentioned that we collect, we think we can get an additional insight we don't have today. You come up with the idea, just find a colleague that also thinks it's a good idea. Find a peer somewhere in the organization. Okay. And actually, the further the peer is organizationally from you, mm -hmm. then the more time you get. Interesting. So, so if you get someone in your direct group to mm -hmm. vouch for it, that you work with day in and day out, yeah. that's not quite as impressive. If you get someone from one of the business units that right. you normally have no association with. And they say, wow, that's a really good idea. But yeah. in either case, that's all you need to get this micro grant to basically okay. give you a few days to pursue, develop, kind of shake out the idea to see if we need to pursue it, turn it into a project. Mm -hmm. And do, is there any sterling example um, that of something that was done and has came has come out really well in the past year related to this or is the program a little too new for that no there have been there have been a bunch of examples i'll right. give you just a couple there's there was one that as i mentioned we collect these different metrics around the collaboration tools mm -hmm. i think coming out of the micro grant was a view that um 
if you're a certain type of organization in the company, maybe you run a innovation center mm -hmm. or you run you run an organization that's supporting one particular sponsor like the army. Yeah. How can you compare yourself to other organizations that have a similar type of charter and role inside the company and actually look at the way you're using the collaboration tools side by side to oh, say, wow. isn't that yeah. really interesting? This other organization, another innovation center mm -hmm. is doing some things completely different than us. I wonder why that's the case. Huh. So that came out of a micro grant. A recent one though, that, that just came in literally a couple of days ago was this concept of a project war room. So in the, in the government and the sponsors that we, difference, that we serve, there's this concept uh, around projects called a war room. And traditionally years and years ago, you'd block out a conference room. The team would basically live in the conference room. The conference room would have the walls covered with schedules, with artifacts, with analysis. Empty pizza boxes all over empty the Empty pizza boxes, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the whole concept of a war room on really intense efforts. And so the microgrant was how do you create a war room in this hybrid world? across virtual and physical spaces. Yeah. And there are really no commercial tools that we found that sort of go after that directly. So mm -hmm. it's really going to be a combination of some technologies and working models to allow us to create that type of experience, a project war room yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the hybrid world that we're working in. Mm -hmm. So that's a micro grant that was just submitted. That's so cool. Well, and I think all of this probably relates to an, another question we have from our alert and esteemed audience, wondering if you had specific ways that you encourage your team to get involved with the business processes and the issues and solutions that are being developed. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you are doing now that you want to call out as a specific? Well, I, I think there'd be a couple things I would mention. One is that the business processes that the direct business uses, mm -hmm. we need to use the same things in the IT shop. Okay. Uh, we can't, we can't sort enough. of come up with our own different ways of doing things. So the way that the direct business runs projects, kind of tracks projects, reviews projects, mm -hmm. thinks about technical quality and deliverables, you know, all of those things are kind of built into the direct business. We follow those same processes inside the corporate IT shop. Okay. And that gives us firsthand experience. You know, how, how do we think it's working out? And yes. how could our systems better support them? The second thing is just to look for ways where we network with the direct side of the business. So we often will bring in experts in particular technologies Mm -hmm. into our IT shop kind of on loan to, you know, give us some expert consulting and topics. Mm -hmm. And likewise, if we're kind of leading on certain topics, like I mentioned, Zero Trust, we will get, or hybrid collaboration, we will get brought into sponsor engagements because the sponsors mm -hmm. want to know, what do you, what is MITRE actually doing inside your enterprise? What are you finding? What's working? What's not working? 
Yes. So it really works both ways, and we encourage that inside the organization. Yes. I've always liked the phrase, drinking your own champagne. Yes. Uh, for that. Much better than that other one that people used right. to use about dog food. <laughs> so, yeah, or, or Kool-Aid. Well, yeah. Oh, well, I guess there's some danger of that, right? Um, let me see. For our wrap-up question here, I always like to uh, end the show with some of the advice or ideas that you have found <clears throat> most valuable as a leader. Um, and so I will just leave that to you to take that away. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll take one that's maybe hopefully not too a conventional one that you hear a lot, but I would, the advice I would say is sometimes the best opportunities, uh, either around projects or around steps in one's career path are hiding in plain sight, but not, um, hmm. you know, not obvious on first glance. In fact, they may be, it may be very counterintuitive on first glance. So I, so I mentioned a couple examples how we took business models like the help desk and, and really it. turn it, yeah, to flip it around. Um, there are countless things that we've been able to do inside the company on that. But I, I think also it applies to one's career. If you look inside the organization, there are often pretty obvious moves in mm -hmm. terms of steps to take, you know, and expanding your experience. But sometimes really the opportunity where you'd learn the most, maybe on the surface, one you wouldn't be apt to consider. And okay. so that, that has happened to me on a couple of occasions where uh, new assignments that I moved into on the surface, I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this, but they actually mm -hmm. ended up being the ones where I learned the most. Well, I think a lot of places, too, uh, the corporate ladder is not just a straight. It's not like shoots and ladders, that game we no, used to play not. as kids. Right. It's a matrix of different. No. And, uh, a lot of diagonals and curves to them. There are. There are. Yes. There are a lot of lateral moves you can make where you are much more closely involved in the business. Because I know you're fond of, of saying that the CIOs it really can't just be visitors to the business. You have to live in the trenches. So exactly. some of that. Yes. Uh, Excellent. Very good advice and very good questions from our audience today as well. If you joined us late today, you can watch the full episode uh, here on LinkedIn, but also on CIO.com and YouTube's IDG Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live is available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with John Wilson, VP, CIO, and CSO of MITRE Corp. as much as I did. Thank you so much for being with us here today, John. Thank you, Mary Fran. And I hope you'll join us uh, for the next CIO Leadership Live, which will be on Wednesday, November 17th, when I'll be joined by CIO Jamie Holcomb of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks again to our sponsors for this episode, Palo Alto Networks. And do take a moment while you're at it to subscribe to that YouTube channel I mentioned, IDG Tech Talk, where you'll find all of our more than 75 previous shows at this point. Stay well and stay safe out there and do stay in touch with us. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank you. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.